0: Today's story um, is about John Wesley and this story is particularly intertwined with the story we heard a couple of months ago um, about a man by the name of George Whitfield. These two men lived at the same time. They were good friends um, and they did also work together. But John Wesley has his own story. Now, before we go into the story, it's important to really understand something of the context of England during the 1700s. So this was a particularly dark time for the UK, for for England. Not only was there a massive class divide, you know, the rich were very rich and the poor had absolutely no hope in the world for them. They were uh, treated like a commodity, a resource that would make money for the rich. So the class divide was huge and also it was impossible for people to go up in the world. If you were poor, that is where you lived and died. But during the 1700s, there was one other little detail which impacted England a lot, and that was the production of gin. So, gin is, of course, the alcoholic liqueur, um, a, a liquor there, and it's very potent. And it became cheaper than beer. So, during this time, in the 1700s, there was a huge amount of social unrest and problems because of the production of gin, which was totally out of control. Um, Of course, after a while, the government tried to uh, put laws in place but there was so much damage done to society. The impact on the poor was that there was so much drunkenness in England that children were completely neglected. Um, You know, newborns were left in the streets, um, people lost jobs, so much money was spent on alcohol and there was so much crime and violence across England during this time. Now, just across the channel in France, there was a similar unrest and there was a lot of uh, problems and, of course, that resulted in a huge revolution. Now, England was headed in the same direction and historians actually say that it was this man, John Wesley, who saved England. So, we begin in Epworth, which is in Lincolnshire. This is where John Wesley was born and he was born to a reverend by the name of Samuel Wesley and his wife Susanna. Now Samuel was actually a really disliked rector or reverend at the time Um, and uh, perhaps this event was on purpose, we don't know. But one night they woke to find that their house was on fire and it was actually the 11-year-old daughter who had woken to a piece of the roof that had fallen on her bed and it was on fire. And so she had alerted the family, the the, uh, father had been working, who worked the mother, who went and got the the older children and the father ran up the stairs to the nursery, called the maid, the maid grabbed baby Charles who was just in the cot, got the other children up and they ran out of the house, tumbling out the door and Samuel looked at his children and said, where's John? One child had been left in that home. And so Samuel ran back into the house and little five-year-old John had been asleep through that whole confusion and chaos and he'd been left on his bed. And meanwhile, Samuel ran back in, but the stairway up to the nursery had caught fire and he ran outside again, fell on his knees and committed John's soul to God. Meanwhile, little John had woken up And he'd run to the door and was met by a a wall of flames and then he'd run to the window, he'd undone the latch and he'd he'd sort of called out of the window. But no one could see through all the smoke haze until a neighbour heard something and saw this little figure at the the window and called for a ladder. And another man at the time said, no time for a ladder, quick, just jump on my shoulders. And so these two men holding each other like this reached up and grabbed five-year-old John and they tumbled to the ground and Samuel and Susanna watched as their house all their possessions his beloved book collection all the sermons he had written went up in smoke and Samuel said I am a rich man all my children are alive Susanna Wesley felt that the Lord had preserved her little boy John perhaps for an important reason Now John Wesley was the 15th child out of 19 children but in those days with uh, infant mortality as it was only 10 of those children survived. Susanna lost two sets of twins and along with five other children who didn't survive through childhood. Um, But every child she had she saw as a gift from God. She said, you know, my children are as a talent committed to me under the trust of our great Lord. Now, Susanna herself was a a fascinating woman. She was extremely unusual for her time. She uh, was uh, very, very well read. She could read Latin and Greek. She knew a lot about history and um, she was very, very highly educated for for the 1700s. And not only that, but she was extremely headstrong. She had very strong views about parenting and her and her husband did clash on a lot of issues at uh, various times in their marriage. However, um, her strength of character did uh, really um, pay off when uh, her husband, Samuel, was put into prison, a debtor's prison in Lincoln Castle um, and he was uh, put there because he hadn't paid his debt on time and she had to care for her 10 children without any money or any help um, and she managed to do that. John Wesley said of his mother later, he said she felt a lot less for people than her husband did but she did ten times more. Susanna was very, very strict with the children, extremely strict. Um, And in fact, you know, they, they were given a very strong education, but they were punished very severely for any wrong that they did. And even when they were punished and they were beaten for their crimes, whatever it were, she instructed them that they were not to cry. They were only allowed to murmur softly. That was all. And she was, she was uh, but she, she had an extreme, this, this discipline that she applied to them and her level of organisation, which was incredible, really stuck with all the Wesley children um, in their adult years. She taught them the Bible. She even had a schedule because, of course, she had 10 children. Um, she met with each one. She had a schedule of one evening a week where she would meet individually with one child for additional teaching instruction or development of character. She also had an incredible way of teaching reading. She had a method that she swore by and John Wesley learnt to read in two days. John Wesley, however, was a very bright boy and he was picked out very early on um, as somebody who was extremely capable during school time and he was given a scholarship to go to Oxford University So here he he also excelled. He was a very good student in Latin, Greek, Hebrew and with these uh, he actually could speak them as well. He also studied logic and the classics and his uh, university days were very good. I mean, he studied very, very hard and he was elected a fellow of Lincoln College in Oxford. Now, this was an award or an honour given to senior academics who were outstanding in some way. And to be named a fellow was such an honour and Samuel Wesley was so proud of his little John, as he would say. But during this time, you know, Wesley also really wanted to continue that strong discipline that his mother had instilled in him and he wanted to live a really, really holy life. He wanted to take account of every moment of every day and so he started a journal, And in this journal, he decided he would write down everything he did um, or the key things that he did and achieved in each day. Um, And of course, he he wrote in in a shorthand code to make it quick and a code so that nobody else could see what his journal said. And it was such a good code that it actually took 250 years for people to fully decipher his journal Now he read the bible very closely he could read it in greek and hebrew and um, he strove to live a perfect life in fact in his journal he wrote that he was going to give up idle talk and vain plays and things like that he really wanted to be like a saint now when Charles Wesley joined his older brother a few years later at Oxford Charles really didn't, well it didn't appeal to him this saintly life his older brother was li- living. He was far more interested in the theatre, in poetry, particularly in writing poetry, he loved that. But John was desperate for his brother to also follow him in his holy pursuit. During this time John Wesley read many books and one of the books he read um, was called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life and he really took this to heart and he strove day after day to be deemed worthy at the end of his life to be accepted by God at the age of 21 Wesley was ordained as a clergyman and uh, his, this was kind of an obvious career path for him because of course his father was a clergyman and that's sort of what happened in those days you followed in your father's footsteps and he really although this was seen as a very much a a good career you know move it was a stable job and so on he he took it to heart and he, he really took it seriously and he really wanted to be a good example to his congregation one time an elderly man said to him a line that stuck with him for the rest of his life he said to John Wesley the Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion you cannot serve God alone you must therefore find companions or make them so John took this to heart and he thought if I'm going to be holy then I need to find other people that will uh, help me and keep me accountable and so Charles became his first companion and Charles had already been very much influenced by his older brother and had uh, let go of a lot of the uh, leisure activities that he'd liked and he he really also wanted to follow in his older brother's footsteps and soon a number of other companions came and joined them And the other students at Oxford University used to laugh and and call this, this, this group the Holy Club because they were all trying to be so perfect and holy. But Wesley really encouraged this little band of companions to live a purposeful and godly life. And he felt that in striving to do this together, they would finally be able at the end of their lives to enter into the gates of heaven. Now Wesley was a natural leader he was um, and uh, he, he was far their um, senior in terms of his academic skills he was also extremely organized very disciplined and had a huge amount of energy and so the, everyone looked up to him and it was um, pretty obvious why he also led by example so there were times when he wanted to he, he, he had this idea that we need to be generous to the poor and so he He sort of thought that we should save money. So what he would do is he would uh, not put a fire in his room during the cold English winters to save that money so it could be used elsewhere. He also, he did things like he fasted twice a week and he also decided that it would be a great idea not to hire horses and waste your money like that but actually to walk everywhere and of course benefit from the exercise as well. Now, this was massively significant in those days because in order to visit his own parents, that meant a walk of 240 kilometres one way. And that's what he and Charles would do when they went and visited their parents. Now, his parents were so alarmed at this change in lifestyle that they actually said, you know what, don't visit us because we are so stressed and anxious for that week that you are on the road walking that you will be attacked by bandits that it is not worth you coming to visit us we don't want you to come but they did come and they walked the entire way while they walked they would read they would discuss things because John Wesley was so clear about the use of time now um, you know even his own parents Susanna Wesley said to him I am ashamed of you and I hope that you will come to your senses with all this fasting with all this walking what do you think you're doing and that's that's kind of how people viewed them at that time there was a young servitor which is like a servant of the university students um, whose name was George Whitfield Charles had seen him as a young man and uh, this man, George, was, was quite interested in the gospel, and Charles had invited him to come and be part of their holy club. And so Whitfield, when he, he joined, was so in awe of John Wesley. Wesley was so much his senior in understanding and learning, but also just spiritually, he understood the scripture so much. But there was one thing Whitfield really struggled to understand. You see Wesley along with everybody else many other people at that time really believed that one was born again when you were christened as a, as a baby and then you had your lifetime ahead of you to reach Christian perfection and then maybe by the end of your life if you had reached that Christian perfection you would be approved of by God deemed worthy and allowed to be with him in heaven. But you see Whitfield really didn't see that in the scripture. It didn't sort of fit. But he was so much in awe of his mentor, the Wesleys, both both John and Charles, that he didn't ever dare dispute it. And in fact, he decided he would follow their footsteps and live a perfect and holy life. Now Wesley's father was dying at one point and, and the two sons ended up journeying that very long walk back to Epworth to be with him. And they stayed with him for a while. And while they were away, Whitfield had come to the end of the road with all his striving. And he had experienced the Lord. And he understood in that time when he was alone the word grace. He'd experienced grace. And Whitfield was absolutely transformed. He talked about a, a joy that was overflowing. Suddenly the scripture became alive to him and he really understood what it meant to be born again. And he wrote Wesley a long letter because he understood that Wesley, John Wesley and Charles, neither of them had had this experience. They had not been born again. They were striving. They were were under the law. They did not understand grace and Whitfield saw this clearly. He wrote John a very long letter and explained his experience and tried to explain this, this idea of grace from the scripture. Wesley didn't agree. Meanwhile, the colonies of America were being set up, and uh, many people were moving over to America uh, from Europe, from uh, many other countries. And Wesley was asked if he would be a missionary. Um, A missionary not only to the Indians, the the native Indians there, but also to the settlers. There there was no sort of reverend there and they they wanted to establish something. And so Wesley was called to be a missionary and he thought that this would be a really good opportunity. Charles also was uh, asked to go as a secretary to the uh, Minister of Indian Affairs or something like that. But Wesley was very clear about his motive and this is perhaps a little questionable, but he thought that in going over as a missionary and preaching to the Indians that he would save his own soul. This would help him in his step towards a devout and holy life and he thought that if he was preaching the gospel he might maybe also understand it for himself. On the voyage over, there were many storms and he was in a ship with a whole lot of Germans uh, who were escaping persecution. These Germans were called Moravians. They were Christians, they were uh, believers who were being very much persecuted in Germany by the Catholic Church. And these people were travelling over to America to start a life there. Now, Wesley actually started learning German, as you do, on on the voyage uh, so he could converse freely with these with these people and he did he sat amongst them and he he listened to them and he, he sat with their meetings and there was something very different about these people they were simple folk but they were so different there was a joy that he certainly didn't have and then there was a night where there was a storm raging outside and Wesley was in um, with these Germans as, as were several of the other English crew and There was a point where they were singing together but a huge wave tossed the ship to the side and then crashed down onto the deck, splitting the mainsail. Even the sailors who were so experienced on the ocean screamed in terror. They thought that night it was all over and Wesley himself found himself screaming in terror as well. He was so scared to die. But as he noted afterwards, those Germans, they finished the hymn there was no screaming amongst them the men the women and even their children were so calm and peaceful through the whole storm despite the fact that they were holding on to things so as not to be washed into the raging sea now that shook wesley because he realized that he really was scared to die and when he arrived in savannah georgia in in america he met with a German pastor who, um, who had a, a sense of Wesley or maybe understood him a little bit. And this man said to Wesley, do you know Jesus Christ? And Wesley answered straight away and said, I, I know he's the saviour of the world. And then the man said, true, but do you know that he has saved you? And Wesley said, well, I, I hope that he has saved me and the man pressed again and said do you know this in yourself and Wesley said I do but later in his journal he wrote I do vain words Wesley's time in America was an incomplete and utter disaster He had gone to improve himself, to follow his strict holy lifestyle, to get a full understanding of the gospel while he converted all of those native Indians but the whole venture completely undid him. Firstly, the Indians completely ignored him. They did not relate to him at all. They ignored him completely and not one of them showed any faint interest in the message that he brought them. The settlers thought that this little strange man from England was an annoyance they disliked him a lot they thought he was strict and severe they didn't warm to him at all and wesley himself found it very difficult to be there he found it very difficult to preach he he, he couldn't really teach the people and none of them liked him at all but then there was the love affair wesley had no intention of marrying he knew that it wouldn't be right for a missionary if he was travelling through the, you know, the, the, the um, remote areas of America. There's, there's no way he could be married. Um, and yet he had fallen in love with a young lady by the name of Sophie. And he didn't know himself at this time and he was perhaps a little impulsive. His friends actually warned him and said for him to be careful but he, he was, uh, well, he, he was impulsive and he proposed to this young lady and she actually declined him she had been engaged to an unsavoury man who was currently in prison for fraud or something like that and so the whole experience had led her to feel so hurt that she she determined she would never be married but Wesley well he he thought that perhaps she was the one really and and he was so in love that his, his judgment was very clouded at one point, his friends asked to pray about it and they decided to follow in the footsteps of the early apostles in, in Acts and they wanted to draw lots. And so they wrote on three pieces of paper, Marry. think no more of it, think no more of it this year. And they put those bits of paper in a bag. They prayed fervently that God would pull out the one that would give Wesley the correct direction. And Wesley pulled out the card and he opened it up and it said, think no more of it. But Wesley did think of it and he thought about, about it a lot. Now, as time went on, um, he, he did continue to think about Sophie and wonder about their union, but Sophie was still, you know, said, no, no I really can't marry, etc." But then there were these rumours that she was actually... Um, courting or a man by the name of Williamson was actually courting her and and she you know Wesley when he came back to the town where she lived you know confronted her about these rumors and she denied and said completely wrong of course not not true at all and uh, then he was very shocked within a week to find that she was engaged to this Williamson and he was so upset and yet he, he knew that God had spared him from a, perhaps a, not a suitable union there. She had deceived him and lied to him over and over again and, um, but, but he couldn't see that at that time and he felt miserable and lonely. A while later and Sophie and Williamson were married and, and some other things happened and there was a time when Wesley refused to allow Sophie to take part of the breaking of bread, the Holy Communion. And this was because he felt that she'd been dishonest about something. And uh, Williamson was so enraged. How dare this reverend think he had the right to tell Sophie what she... If she wanted to have the Holy Communion, she could have it. And he was so angry that he issued an arrest warrant for John Wesley with a fine of £1,000, which there was no way uh, Wesley could pay. The colony was very divided, So many of them supported Williamson because they didn't like Wesley anyway. And some people said, well, you know, Wesley is the reverend here. And so there were some that supported Wesley. But Wesley stood his ground and he was very strict and severe about this and he refused to budge and he refused to pay the fine. But in his heart of hearts, he knew that his whole time in America had just been a complete disaster. All the work that he could do, even in the future, was now in tatters and he knew he really had to leave and so leave he did and he escaped at night and he he was with two other perhaps more unsavory characters who were also escaping the colony they sailed down the river they got out they had to traipse through swamps and find their way through forests to a town that then led them to the port and to a ship that went to England on that voyage home, Wesley had a lot of time for reflection. He had seen something of his own heart. He had seen his faith, well, he saw that he had none. He was so scared in the face of death he had been so disliked by the settlers, ignored by the Indians, embroiled in this love affair that almost, uh, well, that, that really sort of hurt him and, and then he'd been arrested, he'd been fined and then he'd deserted this colony um, by night. It wasn't exactly glamorous and perhaps disaster was too tame a word. He wrote in his journal a bit later, he said, I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay believe myself while no danger is near, but let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled and nor can I say to die is gain. But this was not the end of his story of course. On May 24th when he was 35 years old, Wesley randomly opened his Greek New Testament and his eyes came upon the verse that said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. That very evening he was invited by some Germans to uh, a, a meeting place. He, he actually didn't want to go. Um, he, he really preferred to stay at home but he went in order to be polite and at this particular meeting they were, there was someone going to be reading from the preface, of Martin Luther's commentary of Romans and it was at 8.45 when the reader was at the point where Luther described the change that God works in the heart of man by faith that Wesley suddenly sat up and he wrote later he said I felt my heart strangely warmed Suddenly I realised that I did trust Christ alone for my salvation. I had an assurance that he had already taken my sins. Wesley, in that listening to that commentary on Romans, that just the preface even, had suddenly realised that he had been living his life under the law. He had not even understood grace. He had been hoping for Christian perfection, that perfect holy life and He had been, well, he knew he had failed spectacularly. Suddenly he realised that he was already a conqueror, not because of anything Wesley had done, but because of everything Christ had already done for him. And Wesley knew that he was justified by faith and he had that very night peace with God. Yet the devil acted very, very quickly and the next day, you know, he was seized with doubts, Because for Wesley, he had no overflow of emotion. He wasn't covered, like, he, was, he wasn't like George Whitfield, who hugged the first person he saw and, and, uh, and wanted to dance down the stairs. For Wesley, he felt no huge emotion, just a calm assurance that he had been saved. And the devil suggested to him that he had not because he had none of that joy that Whitfield had described in his long letter and none of the joy that some of these Germans had that he had met but thankfully Wesley saw this as temptation from the enemy and he carried on because he understood that knowing that God he, he knew that God had worked on him and the lack of emotion that he felt had no bearing on God's work in his life now Wesley's work completely changed he now for the first time in his life had a message to preach he now understood the gospel very clearly and the scripture opened itself to him now Whitfield meanwhile had already been preaching through England and had already actually traveled over to America to take Wesley's place now Whitfield when he went to America he preached the gospel to thousands and he found that the settlers were so hungry for the word of God. His his whole experience in America was so different to Wesley because of course Whitfield was preaching the gospel, Wesley was preaching the law. And they the settlers in America loved Whitfield and he loved them in a way that Wesley never did. But not only that, but Whitfield had been working in England. He had, had, had been preaching in Bristol and, and he had spoken to thousands and he had written letters to, to Wesley explaining all this work that had been happening and said that God is at work here. Please help me, join with me in this. And one thing that Whitfield described, it, it, at first quite alarmed Wesley, but it was Whitfield describing these very, very poor people in Kingswood outside of Bristol, the coal miners or the colliers. Now, these men lived very much separately from the rest of society. They were, you know, there was the poor and then there were the coal miners. They were the poorest of the poor. They had no hope on earth whatsoever. They lived in shanty towns away from everybody else. They were known for their violence, their drunkenness, of course, and uh, their general just. Uh, their, their degrading lifestyle many of the children had to work very long hours in the coal mines uh, of course the their parents did as well often people were killed in the coal mines but then you know it was cheaper just to get someone else rather than retrieve the body and so that's, that, that they were absolutely seen as a resource and even the children were sent down into the smaller coal mines where they would fit and if they were scared the, the rich you know, owners would just give them a bit of gin to drink that's how it was So many people died not only breathing the toxic coal dust but just from all the accidents that happened and of course the drunken violence that occurred in these communities. Now these communities were so removed that even the clergymen of the day didn't want to let these people into the church buildings lest they defile the congregation and their nice building. They were dirty and seen as, I guess, a community that was to be forgotten. Whitfield Had gone to them Whitfield had preached the gospel to these people standing in the fields and preaching to thousands and found that they were hungry desperate for the hope that came through Jesus Christ and Whitfield wrote of all of this to Wesley and Wesley thought it was marvelous God was at work but there was one thing that he really that really troubled him Whitfield was preaching outside outside a church building and he didn't do that in those days in fact Wesley himself didn't think it was proper he thought it was perhaps even disrespectful for someone to preach outside a church building you know should should someone even be saved outside a church building is, is that possible that's really what Wesley thought and he, he had this traditional and very prejudiced view about things but he couldn't deny that God had been working and after a, a, a while of thinking And after reading the Sermon on the Mount, where, of course, Jesus himself preached in the fields, suddenly Wesley realised that all those traditional views were nonsense. And he understood that all the world is my parish. Everyone needed to hear the gospel. And Wesley knew that it was his calling to preach and teach, not only to the the aristocrats and the academics at Oxford and the various universities, but also to the coal miners and the tin miners, the factory workers and the chimney sweeps. Now, while Whitfield spoke with an incredible effectiveness, with so much emotion and this storytelling and a voice that travelled over 10,000, Wesley didn't have those exact same gifts. He had very different gifts, but the two of them were able to work together so well. Whitfield would come through and preach the gospel. There were thousands of converts wesley would come in and teach the people he understood that these people had you know being saved by the lord was one thing but that they their lives were so contrary to the gospel there was so much they had to change and work through and he was the one that understood that and really helped these new converts grow so for example with the colliers of kingswood whitfield saved so many of them but wesley came in afterwards He organised them in what he called little societies, small groups. He identified people that he really taught who became mature leaders who then were able to meet with small groups to encourage people to keep accountable. He helped them get off the gin. He exchanged it with tea. He taught them to drink tea. And he he really wanted to teach them how to pray and how, of course, they were illiterate. So he had to find people who could read to read the scripture to them and help them understand. So Wesley made sure that those seeds were in deep soil and the roots went down deep. He also, of course, all that discipline of his early childhood from his mother, he helped apply that to other people and helped get people's lives together, help them with organising themselves and becoming more disciplined. And this is where the name Methodist came. And these Methodist little chapels, rooms and societies um, became a thing that people recognised. Now, Wesley himself never used this word but other people actually in jest and when they were laughing at him, they used to say, Ah, look at his methods. He has all these strange methods. He's he's so organised and into his organisation and so they called him a Methodist. But Wesley never really wanted to um, go against the Church of England at the time He never wanted to start a new denomination. All he wanted to do was to help people grow in the Lord, to make disciples. That he knew was his calling. Now Charles too had been converted and although he did preach like his older brother, that was not his main gift. His main gift of course was writing poetry which just rolled off his pen. Charles wrote in his lifetime 6,000 hymns many of which we already, we, we still know today, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Love Divine or Love Excelling, and um, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. All of these were Charles Wesley's hymns. Now, actually, he wrote these hymns and often John edited. John was very careful with the detail. He often looked at one word and he said, not, not, not sinless, change that to spotless. Not in, you know, not with, make that in. He was so detailed and he was very, very careful with the wording of these hymns because actually the reason they, they actually put these hymns together was to teach the poor. You see, you know, John wanted to apply these hymns to a very simple, catchy melody and uh, Charles would make sure that the melody wasn't distracting to the words. They were careful to put into the words important truths because they knew these poor people couldn't read. They didn't have Bibles and so they wanted to teach through hymns. They wanted these poor people to take these hymns with them as they descended down into the coal mines, as they were walking along the roads at night, as they were in the horrible factories or up those chimneys. He wanted those people to have this with them. And of course, that is actually where these hymns started to be heard throughout England. It wasn't in the church buildings. It was often in the fields, in the factories and in the coal mines. That's where these hymns were sung. Susanna Wesley had learned about her two brothers, uh, two sons' conversions, the, the, um, the Wesleys, and to her it was all very strange, but she had listened to them. And one Sunday when she was receiving communion um, at a church, she heard a, the words that she had heard a hundred times before The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given to thee. But suddenly those words came alive to her, and she said, the blood of Jesus Christ given to thee that that's me and she suddenly realized that the Lord's death was for everyone and that that his blood had been shed for her it was something that had been accomplished and she knew and all the things that her sons had told her sort of all fit together and she said she wrote to her sons later and said I knew that Christ had forgiven my sins at that point point," and so in her later years Susanna Wesley, too, became a servant of God. Now, Wesley travelled up and down England. In fact, he travelled on horseback, um, you know, uh, all the way through England. Sometimes he walked and he had a huge amount of energy and industry. He kept a very, very strict schedule. You know, he purposed to himself that he would rise at 4 a.m. every day and because often his first preaching engagement was at 5 a.m. where he preached to workers before they went out onto the fields and so on. Um, and he, you know, he kept up this very strict schedule for, for his entire life. But he was not always welcome wherever he was. One evening, um, and you know, it, in some cases the, the devil might have had something to do with this. On one evening he was speaking to a group of people and they were, they were pressed into this room, a this room of a house. And there were so many people pressed in that the floor started to sag and soon, as more people piled in and were sort of, um, sort of hanging off door frames and everything, the whole floor dropped. However, the owner of that house had just, two days before, packed the basement with barrels of tobacco. The barrels were full as well. And the floor simply dropped a meter and sat on top of all the barrels And so Wesley just continued preaching, just a metre lower than where he was previously. And all the the people, nobody of course was hurt and they just continued to listen and he was hardly interrupted. However, there were other times when there was uh, lots of desperate attempts to interrupt him. In London, he was preaching outdoors to a huge crowd when a whole band of youths thought thought it would be a great idea if they could cause huge confusion, maybe even a riot, by bringing an ox through the crowd what they did was they they got this ox and then they made it really angry they beat it and and made it sort of really jumpy and then they led it to the back of the crowd and then they let it go hoping it would just charge straight through the crowd trampling people you know hitting people from side to side and all the people would run and then there would be a massive stampede and these youths thought that would be wonderful and it would be a way of getting Wesley out of their town however when they let the ox go the ox ran around the crowd and the people you know at that point were so angry they went back to get this ox at that point Wesley was expounding on the verse that said do justly love mercy and walk humbly before our God they let the ox loose again But again, the the ox just ran around the crowd and they even tried to push it into the crowd but it refused. It turned to the side and went around. And then finally in their rage, they shoved it to try and get it into this crowd and it turned on them and it ran straight at them and they had to disperse. Believe it or not, this actually happened a second time at another town where Wesley came to preach and a gang of men were so, they really wanted to get rid of Wesley. Uh, They didn't want to hear his preaching and so they actually hired a bull this time And they beat it until it was bleeding and so it was angry and they dragged this angry bull through the crowd and of course people dispersed and jumped from side to side as the bull came through and Wesley was standing on a table um, to speak over to the crowd and they brought the bull and let it go right in front of Wesley where he was standing on that table. But the bull stood still like a log, didn't move. And these youths were so angry and they they beat the bull and shoved it and to the point where Wesley was actually continuing to preach and occasionally just had to move the bull's face out of his face while he was preaching so the blood wouldn't go all over him. And he continued to preach but these youths were just so angry that this bull wasn't moving, it didn't move at all. And so they, in their rage, they mashed up the table that Wesley was standing on and one of Wesley's companions caught Wesley before he was crushed by this mob and the bull still stood there and Wesley was carried off then he just set up at another place a little bit down the road and the whole crowd followed him leaving these youths with their hired bull but Wesley didn't only meet with persecution amongst the general population. He, he also met with a lot of persecution from the clergymen themselves, um, the, the various churches. But bear in mind that a lot of the clergymen of the day were not saved. They, they just, it was a good secure job. And so they felt very threatened by Wesley and his different ways and his extreme methods. You know, historians used to said about England at the time that when a clergyman preached in a church, you didn't know if he was preaching about Confucius Muhammad or Christ that was the level of Christianity in England at that time and so many of these clergymen when they heard Wesley thought he was very extreme talking about Christ and things like that now when Wesley um, came back to his hometown of Epworth one time the church there the clergyman there closed his doors to Wesley and said you are not preaching here but actually the people of Epworth expected Wesley to preach that Sunday so they crowded from everywhere even neighboring towns they came to hear Wesley preach and of course they were a little disappointed when the 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 curate himself the the reverend there got up and not Wesley and he stood and he uh, stood at the the platform and he gave a whole sermon against the dangers of strange madmen like John Wesley Um, that was his entire sermon And John Wesley sat there, but he knew that he needed to preach to these people in his hometown. And so his assistant, one of his traveling companions, stood outside the church on the way out and just announced that Wesley would be preaching that very night at 6 p.m. at the church. The curate said, oh, no, you're not. You are not welcome here. But Wesley had a loophole and he knew that he would be preaching there at the church at 6 p.m well the word spread quickly and soon crowds were gathered and at 6 p.m. sharp Wesley was there and the curate said you are not coming in you're not coming in not, you're, you're not going to be preaching in my church but Wesley said yes I know but I am allowed to preach on my own family property am I not and that's one place where you are not able to stop me and so Wesley stood on his father's tombstone and from there he preached and the curate really couldn't say anything because that was the Wesley family property. And so from there, standing on his father's tombstone, he preached to a crowd of thousands who stood in the graveyard of the church and in the streets beyond. In a town near Birmingham when Wesley was preaching, um, a huge mob that was in a sort of perhaps a, a drunken frenzy came and surrounded the house in which he stayed in. And these were dangerous times where, you know, even if you were um, it, it, these mobs with their violence, they knew that they, they would never really get caught. Sometimes the constables turned a blind eye, particularly if there was a little bribe involved or anything like that. And so Wesley, when the mob surrounded this house, he knew that, and his companions knew, that uh, it was very dangerous. This mob was calling for blood and they were calling to bring him out They said, knock his brains out, kill him, kill him. And Wesley knew that it might be his last night. And so he decided that he would go out and meet them. And he stood out in that mob and he talked about having a great presence of mind despite the chaos and the throng of the crowd. And he tried to speak to them but they would not listen. And they grabbed him and they wanted to drive him out of the town And Wesley remembered this occasion and he remembered and he said, you know, God so completely overruled and perhaps even showed a a slight sense of humour with many miracles. Firstly, the road out of the town was on a very steep slope these were cobblestone paths and so Wesley it was also damp was being pushed by this huge throng down a hill now he knew that if he slipped and fell that he would be trampled by this mob or beaten into a pulp and so he he thought that he would slip at any moment but he never did he never even tripped and the second thing was that they were all, in this mob, there were a lot of fighters. In those days they had like bare-knuckle fighting and, and bear fighting and all sorts of other violent sports. And amongst this mob there were all these prize fighters and they were all trying to grab hold of Wesley's clothes but it was like their hands couldn't get a grip. They just kept slipping off and so they could never kind of grip Wesley even though they tried to reach out for him. Thirdly, there was a man who stood in front of him at one point with a huge oak club. And he went to hit Wesley over the skull. Wesley at that point committed his life to the Lord. But this man just kept missing. It's like his club went from side to side and he couldn't control it. He got so angry and he, he just tried to aim straight ahead of him and he just kept missing from side to side and Wesley was just seeing this club move from side to side and he gave up after a while. And then another man came right at him and, and tried to grab him and he had his fist ready and he came right at him and then his fist stopped in midair and he patted Wesley on the head and said my what soft hair he has and it was as if he'd forgotten what he was doing and meanwhile Wesley was driven out of the town and the mob dispersed and he found that he only had a few bruises scratches and a torn coat pocket and that was it and even his companions when they had gone out into the mob after him uh, they had said you know Uh, We are not afraid to die because Christ has died for us and we'll give our lives this night. That's how serious it was. And all of them were quite surprised to see each other alive. Now in his mid-40s, or even, I think, yeah, mid-40s, Wesley uh, was advised by people that he should marry. And this was perhaps one of the greatest trials of his life. He did marry. He married a widow by the name of Molly or Mary Vazay. And she was actually known to Charles and Charles's wife, Sarah. Um, And Charles was horrified when he heard that this was a potential union. And Charles thought, no, 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 no. But John had seen this woman and seen her piety. She was industrious. She was efficient. And perhaps he was a bit too hasty. She proposed to him. He accepted. She accepted and... She she knew already, of course, of his lifestyle and John Wesley had made it very clear that as a single man, as a married man, nothing will change. He had a calling from God and he needed to fulfil that calling to preach and teach Christ to the people of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. That That was his clear mission. But within a few weeks of their marriage, it was very different. Molly, it was revealed, had an extremely violent temper. She was very jealous she hated the fact that he was off preaching all the time she hated the fact that he was writing letters to people preparing for sermons and she she felt very jealous at times she would steal his papers burn his writings just to sort of get back at him he she she resented his generosity to the poor people as well and soon you know it was very clear what John knew that her heart was not with him her heart was actually against him and she did everything she could to stop him from serving the Lord and, and preaching and, and, and doing what the Lord had uh, called him to you know but John perhaps was very much shaped by the, this particular trial and his character was very much shaped and he became a much mellower man as a result some people actually even say that he was too meek And too mild and perhaps should have done a little more molly actually wrote scandalous letters about her husband and sent them to people who hated him already to fuel their hatred she did everything to increase the hatred for john wesley that was uh, amongst the clergymen and so on one time a, a friend of john wesley arrived at the home unannounced And walked into the drawing room and found Molly um, dragging John by his hair across the floor in a rage but uh, Wesley was very meek and mild about this and Molly ended up leaving John Wesley to live with her relatives and they were never reunited Wesley continued with excellent health throughout his later years, despite his extremely full schedule and trying life. His life was a variation on a single theme, to preach Christ and to build up believers and to build up the church. He had a very easy routine, on the road all summer, a circle around the entire of the kingdom, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. He travelled up and down visiting villages, you know, 15, 16 times and he would check on the people and, 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 and all, the, all the believers in those places. In the winter when the roads were more impassable, he was often found in London Bristol in the cities where he was overseeing a lot of the schools that he'd set up, the orphanages, meeting with various leaders. Little Methodist chapels, these little rooms and homes were springing up in villages all across England. And uh, this is where Wesley encouraged people to meet, not just on Sundays, but at other times, singing hymns, teaching hymns, encouraging prayer, keeping each other accountable. And many people were doing that. At 85 years old, Wesley was still preaching and travelling through England, but Charles was not so well. And um, when Charles passed away, Wesley was very, very affected. Three weeks after the funeral... He was um, preaching to a crowd and there was a children's choir and this choir sang one of charles's hymns and as was the custom john wesley stood up and he just read out the first verse of the hymn that they would be singing and when he came to the line my company before is gone and i am left alone with thee the silver-haired man covered his face and wept and it says that it was said that the entire congregation burst into tears with him. But he wiped his tears away and he preached to the rest of the people. At 85, he was still um, in extremely good health. Uh, it was incredibly, his only complaint was that he struggled to read small handwriting by candlelight. Um, he continued to travel and at this time in his life, he was now known as the best loved man in England. The places where the mobs had run him out of the town, the town where they'd hired the bull, now those same people were flocking just to see him or catch a glimpse of this elderly man who had saved them from themselves. And um, he wrote, you know, he wrote later, Though I am always in haste, I am never in a hurry because I never undertake more work than I can do and than, than I can go through with perfect calmness of spirit. At 87 he was beginning to fail and his companions noticed he was becoming very weak and they knew that he was near his end when one day he wasn't able to rise out of his bed. and On Tuesday the 1st of March he, he really had no strength left in him and um, they knew that the end was near his final words were the best of all god is with us and with that he tried to sing an isaac Watts hymn, but all they could hear was i'll praise him i'll praise him and he went to be with his lord and master the next morning the last sermon he preached he had only preached just a few days before and it was on the text seek ye the lord while he may be found Wesley travelled 8,000 kilometres every year on foot, on horseback and he tirelessly taught people, uh, built people up, encouraged new converts, made sure that they would be able to become the leaders of the next generation. They say he preached 40,000 sermons in his lifetime but it was probably more than that. He wrote numerous letters to individuals, encouraging and advising them. He wrote articles and journals. He created tracts. He wrote lessons of Hebrew grammar, English grammar, Bible lessons for children and for the schools that he worked with and he helped set up. Not only that, but he edited and and sometimes co-wrote many of those hymns that Charles Wesley wrote, although he always attributes them to Charles. And perhaps it's most interesting that a secular magazine, The Gentleman's Magazine, when they heard of John Wesley's death, wrote of him, instead of being an ornament to literature, he was a blessing to his fellow creatures. Instead of the genius of the age, he was the servant of God. But perhaps we can share a little in this last quote which Wesley wrote for himself and may it be our prayer as well let it be the one desire of my heart to be as my master, to do not my own will, but the will of him that sent me.